Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We have been uh, going through Colossians um, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and we've come now to um, chapter 3. And um, I'm excited about my, my text today. You need to know my, my experience with my wife over, uh, over the past year or so. And I testify, you can talk to her later, is almost every morning we drive to church and she says, um, Steve, so what do you think about your message today? And I just, I said, it's terrible, Yvonne. I've tried and it's just, it's just bad. And uh, today was different. Today, was, uh, you know, I'm just really excited about my message today about the things above. You can tell me later. Maybe, maybe later I'll talk to you and you'll say, that was really bad. Um, maybe you'll say, boy, thanks. I, uh, I, I think that was really encouraging. So I, I've got a lot this morning. You may go fast, but it's, I guess I've lived in heaven all week long, and, um, and so it's been, it's been great. So, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, simple, straightforward command, but its implications are immense. Paul simply says this, he says, set your minds on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Let me read it again. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In fact, it's so short. Let us read together, okay? Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. I don't think there's much difficulty in understanding Paul's admonition here. Um, it's a simple command. The positive aspect to it and a, a negative aspect to it. The command is to think, to uh, let our hearts and our, our thoughts and our affections... That, to be directed heavenward and not earthward. We're to think much upon the heavenward realities. We're to think of the things that are true beyond this world. The things that are of the earth are not to consume our attention, but rather it ought to be the things above that, that drive us and help us and, and guide us in all things. It's a call really this morning to control our thoughts. You know, our, our thoughts are an interesting thing is that uh, your bodies are indeed here in this cafeteria. Um, but oftentimes I know that in preaching or whether we're singing, your mind can often be a million miles away. Is that not right? Today, though, that's exactly where you want your, mile, your mind to be. You want it to be far away. The things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Normally it's a bad thing that you're away, but today it's a good thing. So I want to seek to direct your attention. And, and though this verse here, it's, it's easy to understand, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. We are earthly creatures who live and, and breathe and dwell and think about earthly things. And we must. I, mean, I think we have several children here. Right? And children, what, what kind of responsibilities do you have that consumes your time? School, maybe? Reading? Writing and arithmetic, maybe? And for those of you children who are older, what kind of things consume you? You've mastered reading and you're learning more in math, but maybe you've got some extracurricular activities like playing soccer, right? Or helping the football team, right? Or running track, right? Or maybe play practice. And, um, you know, if you have a job, you have worries of the job, there's... The pressures of your boss, there's a deadlines to make. You're dependent upon other co-workers. 
that consumes your mind and attention. If you're married, you have concerns. Husbands, you're concerned about how to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And, and wives, if you're married, you're concerned about how you can submit to your husband. Even when he's not so easy to submit to. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 that the one who's married is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife and his interests are divided. If you're a mother, boy, you've got earthly interests in mind, right? You've got kids to dress and dishes to wash and dinner to prepare. And, and all these types of things... They're consuming to us because we live upon the earth. And though these are real pressures, they are natural pressures. They're God-given pressures and they're necessary pressures. Unfortunately, at times they can be consuming. And they can be so consuming that we don't have time to set our minds on the things above like verse 2 tells us. And I think that the command here in verse 2 really comes with a reason. I think there's a reason why Paul writes this here about setting our minds on the things above. Because it's not natural for us. You know, the Bible often tells us to do things that's not natural for us, right? We, we are told not to steal. Do you know why? Because we're greedy at heart and we like to steal. The Bible tells us not to lie. Do you know why? Because we're liars at heart and we like to lie. We're told to be compassionate towards others. <laughs> do you know why? Because our tendency is to be self-centered and uncompassionate. But we're told to think upon the things above because our tendency is to think only upon earthly things. Now, the things above are the things in heaven. It's where God dwells. I think, though, it's probably a little bit bigger than just heaven itself. It's probably talking about everything that's true of the heavenly realm is what it's talking about here. It's talking about everything above. It's talking about the treasure of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ. It's talking about the things that are laid up for us in heaven. It's talking about the inheritance that we will share someday. It's talking about the full character of the the kingdom of Christ. Yes, it's talking about heaven, but it's talking about not only just God in heaven, it's bigger than that. I think he's talking about the spiritual realities of the things above. We're to think about heaven, we're to think about Christ above, we're to think about those things that are laid up for us. And the command of verse 2 is pushing us there. And it's, it's exactly what we saw last week. It says in verse 1, If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, I think it's repeated here for emphasis. It says, one, verse 1, <clears throat> seek the things above. It says in verse 2, set your mind to the things above. Last week I preached a, a topical message entitled, Seek the Things Above where I sought to really just dabble in it and try to expose for us what it means that Christ Jesus is sitting above. And this week, I'm going to preach another topical message here about setting our minds on the the things above. It's my aim to tell you this morning of what things are like above. You know, many times when preaching, my my preaching is is future-oriented. In other words, I'm trying to help you prepare for life. I'm trying to help you prepare for the conflict that you're going to have at home. I'm trying to help you prepare for your flooded basement that you're going to have in the next rain that comes. I'm trying to help prepare you for the witnessing opportunity that that comes up in your neighborhood or at work or the stresses at work I'm preparing you for. I'm preparing you for the temptation that comes or for sickness. But today's different. In my message today, I am going to help you fulfill the command this morning. You're told to set your mind to the things above. You're told to think on the things above. And so, as I tell you about what heaven is like and what the things above are like, you're going to 
be applying the message. You can be applying what Paul told us to do is to set our minds on the things above. That's my aim, my vision is to, to do that. Before I dive into my outline, I want to ask the question, though, it's important for us to catch a, a context here, is why is verse 2 here? It's always a good question to ask in your Bible study. Why is this verse here? What would be, we be missing if Paul didn't have this verse here? What if it just went from chapter 2, verse 23, just to chapter 3, verse 5? Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Or why doesn't he just skip to verse 8? Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Why doesn't he just jump forward to verse 12? Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why does he tell us first to think on the things above? Well, here's the answer. I think that a heavenward gaze gives fuel to overcoming sin in our lives. A heavenward gaze gives us the fuel to overcome sin in our lives. Because a life that's fixated on heaven will allow our lives to be drawn there and we will seek there rather than the things upon earth. You know, a heavenward gaze is the north star of your navigation through the waters of life. A heavenward gaze is the magnetic north in our walking through the dark forest of life. A heavenward gaze is the guiding principle to encourage us to press forward in our lives. You know, John Bunyan illustrated this well in The Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you remember, just right at the beginning of the birth of the, of the book, is um, Christian had just left the city of destruction on his way to the celestial city. And uh, people had told him he's crazy, and yet he, he went on, and two people came, obstinate and pliable, and obstinate left him because Christian was unmoved and pliable, being the shifty sort of guy that he was, joined him. And um, right at the beginning of the journey, Pliable said, Come, neighbor Christian, since there are none but us two here. Tell me now further what the things are and how to be enjoyed, whither we are going. Christian said, I can better conceive of them with my mind than speak of them with my tongue. But since you are desirous to know, I'll read of them in my book. And do you think the words of your book are certainly true? Yes, verily, for it was made by him that cannot lie. Well said. What things are they? And the Christian describes heaven. Listen to what he says. He says, There is an endless kingdom to be inhabited and everlasting life to be given us that we may inhabit the kingdom forever. Well said, said Pliable. And what else? There are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. This is very pleasant. And what else? And there shall be no more crying nor sorrow, for he that is owner of this place will wipe all tears from our eyes. And what company shall we have there? There there we shall be with seraphims and cherubims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look on them. There also you shall meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy. Everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in His presence with acceptance forever. In a word, there we shall see the elders with their golden crowns. And there we shall see the holy virgins with their golden harps. And there we shall see men that by the world were cut in pieces, burnt in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in the seas for the love that they bore to the Lord of that place. And well clothed with immortality and with the garment 
the hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart, but are, are these things to be enjoyed? How shall we get to be sharers thereof? And Christian says, The Lord, the governor of the country, has recorded that in this book, the substance of which is, if we truly willing to have it, He will bestow upon us freely. The Bible says, Well, my good companion, glad I am to hear of these things. Come on, let us mend our pace. In other words, let us get going. <laughs> let's go. If that's where we're going, let's go there. I want to set my mind there. I like that. And then Christian said, well, I cannot go so fast as I would by reason of this burden that is on my back. And just what a good comparison that is. right? When we think of the things in heaven, both Christian and Pliable wanted to go on. And Pliable wanted to, to press on and Christian was slowed because of his sin. And if you know the story, Pliable later turned back to the city of destruction when the, the troubles of the world, the slew of despond, would, would cause him to lose hope. And, and he turned back because his mind was focused here rather than focusing upon the things of heaven. And you know what? It works the same with us. Just as Christian was slowed down because of his sin, as our minds are, are fully engaged with the realities of heaven, we'll want to reach our destiny. But as the world pulls at us away from pursuing our future homes, this passion we know that we ought, we, we just don't go there quite so fast. We, we get involved in the things like Jake was talking about in terms of relationships or fantasy football or football games or our newest toy or something we're buying or some activity or something we look forward to or kickoff weekend. or All these things of the world, they become to get our affections rather than setting our minds on the things above. And so, this morning as we look at chapter 3, verse 2, it does have an antidote. This is the antidote to sin. Because, like in chapter 2, verse 23, that rules of self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, that's not going to have any value against fleshly indulgence. What's going to help you avoid fleshly indulgence is a, a heavenward gaze. It will fuel our drive to live holy lives here and now. We have an example of that in the book of Hebrews. There are many heroes of the faith. You think about the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about all the different people that lived by faith. They lived by faith. They lived by faith. And none of them saw the day in which they would see Christ. And yet listen to what Hebrews chapter 11 verses 13 through 16 say. That these all died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they have been thinking of that country from which they went out, in other words, thinking of the things below, the things on earth, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, here it is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. They were seeking a heavenly country, seeking a city that God prepared for them. And as they sought that city, they set their minds upon that city. That's where they were going. They didn't think of the earthly city, otherwise they would return back there. But rather, they were nomads traveling in the land. And that's what we are. We are strangers and exiles upon the earth. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship's in heaven. You know, we all have dual citizenship, right? We who believe in Christ. Certainly we are citizens of the United States of America. The Bible wouldn't deny that. But we are 
And we are called to submit to the authorities over us, whether it be kings or governors, elected officials or police officers, but as followers of Christ, we have another citizenship that ought to govern our lives. We're to be loyal to our home country. And where's our home country? Heaven is our home country. That's why Peter can say, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We are aliens and strangers here upon this earth because we have a heavenly city that we seek. And I think the key answer, getting back to my question about why verse 2 is here in Colossians chapter 3, is that when we know where our lives are headed, it's a wonderful effect has it upon the way in which we live upon the earth. Rules are unable to subdue the flesh. Beating our bodies unable to subdue the flesh, right? Willpower is unable to subdue the flesh. But a heavenward gaze can and will with joy and delight. And it's important to realize how close we are to the heavenly reality. We, we are a breath away. You are a heartbeat away from our heavenly reality. Our life, as Psalm 39 says, is like a vapor. Listen to Psalm 139. Every man at his best is a mere breath. You think about man at his best. He is a mere breath. We're flowers of the field that, that bloom and quickly then fade away. We need to realize how close eternity is to us. I read this week of a woman named Florence Chadwick. Who more than 50 years ago, she stepped off of Catalina Island, waded into the cold, frigid waters, and set forth to swim to California 21 miles away. She was the first woman to swim both ways in the English Channel, so she was used to that. And she swam, and she swam, and she swam. Fifteen hours she swam. She was ready to give up. And the coach inside of her boat said, Keep going, Florence, keep going. It's just, I can't make it. I can't make it. And he says, it's, it, it's, you're almost there. And she looked up, and it was a real foggy day that day. She looked up, and she couldn't see the shore, and she gave up. Less than a mile from shore. In the press conference later, she said this, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. If I could have just seen it, maybe I could have made it. And really, that's my heart for you all. I want you to see the land where you're going, that you will make it. The wisdom of Moses is shining clear for us today. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom, right? To know how quick we are to the end will teach us to number our days that we would present to God a heart of wisdom. We'll soon be there. It's a glorious place, heaven is. And I want to describe it to you. But you know, the difficulty with heaven is a difficult place to describe. We can't fully comprehend it. None of us have ever experienced heaven. We're like twins in a womb talking with one another. One's trying to prove the existence of life outside the womb and the other one is trying to deny what it's like. <clears throat> Joel Bailey writes, If I were a twin in the womb, I doubt that I could prove the existence of earth to my mate. He'd probably object to the idea of an earth beyond the womb. That's ridiculous. Because the womb was the only earth that we'd ever know. If I tried to explain that earthlings live in a great expanded environment and breathe air, he'd only be skeptical. After all, a fetus lives in water. Who could imagine being able to live in a universe of air? To him, a transition would be impossible. <clears throat> it would take birth to prove the existence of earth to him. 
a little pain, a dark tunnel, a gasp of air, and then the world outside, green grass, laps, lakes, ocean horses, like a, a fetus. Can you imagine a fetus imagining a horse? Rainbows, walking, running, surfing, ice skating with enough room that you don't have to shove and a universe beyond. And I think for us to imagine and to think about heaven, it's, it's a little bit like fetuses trying to imagine what life is outside the womb. It's difficult. It's just, it's just out of our comprehension. In fact, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. It talks about how no mind is seen and no ear is heard. The, the glorious things that God has prepared for us. But we know some. And that that we know, I want to communicate with you. So here's my first point this morning. After a long introduction, I hope to savor your... Your appetite's here. Heaven is a place of grace. Heaven is a place of grace. Last week we saw how Jesus was seated at the right hand, the things above. It's a sign of grace. Especially when you realize why Jesus is sitting. He's sitting down because His atoning work was finished. His sacrifice was accomplished. He was the ultimate sacrifice. No need for any more. In Hebrews chapter 10, it speaks about the work of the high priest under the Mosaic Law. It says the high priest under the Mosaic Law never sat down, kept ministering day after day, time after time, the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered up that one sacrifice, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The sacrifice of Jesus was a once-for-all sacrifice. No need for Jesus to do anything else. No need for Him to be sacrificed again. The atonement was accomplished and His salvation, the salvation of us was accomplished. Jesus upon the throne, and here's what I'm saying, it's a sign of grace because it's a reminder of how anyone ever gets into heaven. Only by grace. And I'm not sure you realize, but throughout eternity, Jesus will be remembered forever as the Lamb who came to earth and was slain for our sins. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, the, the praise from heaven sings out, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. A few verses later, the chant rises again to Jesus, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Listen, the unadulterated worship to Jesus Christ in heaven is precisely because He was slain. It is a slaughtered lamb that we worship. And as heaven looks upon the lamb upon the throne, our imagery will be brought back and is brought back to the fact that the lamb is the sacrifice lamb and the sacrifice lamb is the one who gives us salvation through His blood. In fact, in the very end of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 22, verse 3, there's a throne of God. It's called the throne of God and of the Lamb. Obviously, a reference to the Trinity, right? The Father and the Son sitting together on the throne. But it's not called the Father and the Son sitting on the throne. What's it called? It's called the Father and the Lamb. And when it talks about the Lamb, it's talking about His sacrifice. When we think about sacrifice, we think of grace. Heaven is a place of, of grace. Because it was His sacrifice that opened the doorway to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Peter said, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through the door of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Nobody ever gets to heaven through their own works. 
Nobody gets to heaven through their religious effort. Nobody gets to heaven on account of their own merits. Listen, the only way to get to heaven is by grace through the work of Jesus Christ. It's not His work plus your work. It's not His work plus your efforts. It's only because of His work on our behalf. It's all of grace. Heaven is a place of grace. When we get to heaven, our eyes will be opened. We will see Jesus as He is and we'll be like Him. Second John chapter 3, verse 2. And some of the things that we will see also, we'll see God clearly. One of the things we'll see is we'll see our sin clearly. You remember when Isaiah saw the Lord? What, what did he do? He said, I'm undone. He, he saw his sin before holy God and understood his sin. And you know what? When we get to heaven, we're going to see our sin for what it is. And when you see your sin for what it is, you're going to be repulsed in many ways. How could I have done that? How could I commit cosmic treason against the Lord? And, and, and in some sense, you'll be filled with regret. But you know what? As you think about your sin and you see Jesus on the throne, you know what it's going to do? It's going to cause you to, to look to Christ. And, and Christ upon the throne, the slaughtered lamb, is going to become even more glorious and more precious to you than you've ever thought possible. Why? Because you're going to see your sin really for what it is. And then you'll see Christ for what He is. I love the way Jonathan Edwards put it. He said, Though the saints in heaven will see their exceeding folly and vileness in much of their behavior here in this world, we will see a thousand times as much of the evil and folly of sin as they do now. Yet, they will not experience any proper sorrow or grief for it for this reason, because they will see at the same time, how that it is turned to the best, to the glory of God, or at least will so perfectly know that it is so. And particularly, they will have so much the more admiring and joyful sense of God's grace in pardoning them that the remembrance of their sins will rather be an indirect occasion of joy. I love that phrase. Yes, our sin is bad. It, but you know what? Our, our sin's an indirect reason for joy because the cross becomes so much bigger to us in heaven. Heaven is a place of, of grace. Well, turn your Bibles back a few books to Ephesians chapter 2. For many of you, I trust these words are familiar. They put salvation forth in as clear a terms as anywhere in the Bible. That salvation is all of grace, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Some of you kids may know this from Awana. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Salvation is by grace. Grace is God's gift to us that we don't deserve. God has saved us in this way with the purpose that verse 9 says, so that no one may boast, right? The way that God saves is in a peculiar manner so that none of us may boast. We get to heaven, there'll be no patting ourselves on the back saying, boy, I was really good, wasn't I? None of us will say how much we deserved heaven because all of us deserve hell. Eternal punishment forever. None of us will be able to say, boy, I'm sure glad that I was smart enough to find the way to glory. In fact, it's just the opposite. There's no boasting in heaven. There's no room, verse 9 says, to boast at all. You can't even boast of your faith. Verse 8 says it clear as day. By grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, the gift of God. And that that was referring to the grace that God gave. He's given the faith that God gave. Your faith, if you have it, is a gift to you from God. 
And God has made it that way so that we can't boast even in our faith. Our boasting is only in the cross of, of Christ. Nobody ever gets to heaven by reason of their own merits. Nobody has any reason to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is something that you think today that's going to somehow merit your way to heaven, my friend, you're wrong. And it may just be that you're not on the path if you're trusting in your own righteousness. Because heaven's a place of grace where boasting is excluded and where Christ is worshipped upon the throne. Why is He worshipped? Because He's provided the way of, of, of salvation. In fact, the very fact that we're there exalts His grace. And we'll see that in a little bit. But let's recall even how we're saved. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. These verses speak of our natural state before God as being dead in sins, being by nature children of wrath. It's really a hopeless state. There's no possibility that we'll ever be able to enter heaven Apart from another coming to rescue us. And God did come and rescue us. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, here's what God did. Verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the work of God. God gives life. That's what salvation is about. It's not, not a matter of us you know, playing a system to get life, it's a matter of God giving life and granting life. That is the main thought of verse 5. Even when we're dead in transgressions, what did God do? God made us alive. And again, pounding this, by grace you've been saved. And it's how you need to think of salvation. Salvation is God raising from the dead. Salvation is God giving life so that none of us can boast because it's not of ourselves. As our focus this morning is heaven, I did want to get to verse 7, which I think chapter 2, verse 7 of Ephesians is probably my favorite verse in all the Bible. The reason why God saved us this way is so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, all of us who are in heaven are object, will be object lessons. So it will be. It will be objects lessons for all to see of God's great grace. And the fact that any of us are in heaven is because Jesus gave Himself for our sins and made us alive and brought us there by His grace. And when we look you, at you in heaven, we're going to say, oh, God's grace is abundant that you're there. And when you get to heaven over here, we say God's grace is it's abundant. You guys, and when you look at me in heaven, you're gonna say God's grace is super abundant that you are there. That's what's gonna be. You're you're here. Why are you here? You're here because of God's grace. Heaven is a place of grace. And in fact, God has saved us in the way that He did, and brought us to heaven the way that He did, and raised us up and seated us with Him, so that in the ages to come, that's heaven, that's future. God might use us to show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus forever. He's going to have us as object lessons. And as we look at each other, we're going to say, God has been gracious to us. 
Heaven's a place of grace. You know, Vaughn, I had an opportunity a few weeks ago to attend a pastor's retreat in Wisconsin. We spent about five days there, and I say it was truly heavenly. This place was amazing. We stayed, the place we stayed was a converted bed and breakfast. Kids, you got a picture of it right there on your notes. Uh, it's got six, six bedrooms, plus the host was there, and there's a butler's kitchen and other things. The accommodation is very charming, very clean. building was on six acres of, of woods filled with wildlife. They had bird feeders all around, so the, the birds that came around were much and pretty. Uh, there were deer walking through. In fact, one time, Yvonne and I were driving out of this kind of driveway, and we kind of stopped. There was a deer, probably about 20, right where Phil is right there. We just kind of sat and watched. The deer looked at us, and we looked at the deer. You know what this is about, right? We looked at the deer, he looked back at us, and kind of stood there, and probably for about two, three minutes or so, just kind of, was pretty, and pretty soon then the deer just kind of galloped across the road and then joined her two fawns, which are right here. And so we just kind of stood and watched them, and they just kind of walked off in the... It was pleasant. It was, it was peaceful. The property was on a lake. They had a sailboat. They had canoes. had a kayak. When we were there, the weather was perfect. It was about the mid-80s. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. It wasn't too windy. So we couldn't sail, but that was okay. It was perfect. Yvonne and I spent each morning between breakfast and lunch out by the lake just reading our Bible out loud to one another and reading other Christian books out loud to one another and interspersed throughout our reading, we had opportunity to talk about our marriage and our family and our ministry. And I would say it was a very, 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 very enjoyable time for us. They served us breakfast, lunch, and dinner, full spread. In fact, there was a full-time cook there. His name was Mike. Very pleasant guy, fun guy. He wore Chuck Taylor Converse and just, you know, just kind of cooked and just was, you know, typical happy, jolly cook and, you know, just... Helping us. If we had special needs, he would have uh, changed the, the plan for a little bit about it. Snacks were available all the time. There was never-ending supply of juice and yogurt and pretzels and popcorn and cookies for us to eat. we just go into the kitchen. we just open this door and just grab the, the fruit and the juice or the, the pretzels. It's abundant. During our afternoons, we filled it with various activities. One day, we canoed all the way around the lake. And, and then there was a channel to another lake. We, we canoed around and there was even an island. We went all the way around this island and, and back. And probably spent, what, two hours on the lake? So much so your shoulders were kind of sore afterwards. We uh, took a nice walk one day around the neighborhood. One couple of days, we rode our bikes. We rode to town one day. It was about two miles to town or a mile to town. Two miles to town, I think. And uh, one day, we rode all the way around the lake. I don't know, maybe four miles or so. Just seeing all the homes. And, and as it was a pastor's retreat, the focus of our time was spiritual. Uh, one of the reasons we spent our mornings reading these things together was it required for us to do. It was basically, if you're going to come, you have to read and study and think and pray and rest. That's what, what, what we had to do. And we stayed with five other pastors and their wives. And we had sweet fellowship with these people. It was really a great time. The, the only other requirement we had, besides having to read and study and think and pray and rest, was that we had to eat one of our meals with all the pastors and their wives. And the, and the host there would ask us questions and would cause us to have spiritual conversation around the dinner table. And um, I tell you, it was, it, was, it was as close to heaven on earth that I've ever experienced. And best of all, it was entirely free. We didn't pay a single penny to stay there. No catch. No we'll bill you later. It was free. All we had to do was call, make reservations, arrange our travel. But once we were there, it was totally free. 
Now, before you start thinking, husbands, oh, what's the name of that place so I can get there? In order to go, you've got to be in full-time ministry. So, unfortunately, excludes a lot of you. But this place has been created because some very generous people have given much money to make this place a refuge for pastors to be refreshed. People understand that there's a high turnover rate of pastors in the ministry due to the stresses of the jobs and due to the discouragements of the jobs. In fact, Yvonne just um, recently calligraphied a, a verse for us. It's in our kitchen now. That is appropriate more than ever before. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. There's a discouragement to the pastorate sometimes. And so, as people know that, they, they have, have given much money to create this place for pastors where pastors can come and, and spend a few days away to refresh them. They might be encouraged to continue on in their ministry. And so, the financial contributions through others have been much to open this, this place to the church at large. They sought to encourage pastors by not growing weary in the labor in the Lord. And for us, I'm telling you, it was an incredible time for us. It was uh, refreshing and restful. At some point, we looked to go back again. Now, one of the things that when we were there, we had a frequent conversation. <laughs> we were saying this. Can you believe that this is free for us? I mean, can you believe we're not paying anything for this, Yvonne? I, I can't believe it. Why would they do this? This is so nice. It's amazing when you stay here for free. That's what Ephesians 2.7 is talking about. With infinite proportions. In the ages to come, He's going to show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved us by His entire grace, right? Freely giving us eternal life. Freely allowing us to enjoy the pleasures of heaven that throughout eternity, you know what we're going to be asking each other? Can you believe we get to stay here? I mean, can you believe this is free? Can you believe we... This is amazing. This is amazing. We don't have to pay anything in this place. It's been given to us. Because heaven is a place of grace. God's gracious. And believe it, it's true. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Right? Jesus had gone to prepare a place for us to go. A place is much better than anything upon the earth. And He's promised to come back and take us to Himself. So I want you just to think about a place that is your most closest place to heaven on earth. I already described for you my place. I want you to think about the place you most love to be, the thing that you most love to do. Maybe it's a place you've visited before. Maybe it's a place that you've never been, but always have wanted to go. I mean, at this point, you guys are thinking, right? Use your imagination. No budget here, okay? Think about heaven. Okay, Think about a place that's heaven on earth. The most enjoyable place. Maybe it's a cabin by the lake where you can fish and read and water ski. Maybe it's a cruise in the Bahamas where you go snorkeling among a coral reef. Maybe it's a tour of the White House, Washington, D.C., where you can have dinner with the president. Maybe it's a jet tour around the world with some famous person of your choice. I, I don't know. But some place for you that's the most favorite, most enjoyable place that you do. In fact, at one point during our retreat, I remember saying to Yvonne, I said, um, as we just sat out there, watched the lake kind of lap by the side and 
sat and read the Bible and other books, I told her, I said, you know what, Yvonne, there's nothing in the world I'd rather do than this. Sit in this lovely environment and read the Bible with you and to talk through these Christian books with you and think about these things together. And so what are you thinking of? Is there anything in your mind that you are thinking of? Maybe you're thinking of a month-long vacation in a bungalow on a remote island in the South Pacific. Maybe you are thinking of something simpler, like even just a romantic dinner with your spouse. I don't know. It's just something that you really like. Now, here's what I want to say. Take that. You got it in your mind? I want you to say, think about this. Heaven is a thousand times more pleasurable than what you're thinking of right now. A thousand times more pleasurable. It's more enjoyable. And that's my second point this morning. Heaven is pleasure beyond measure. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. It's one little verse. I think it speaks mountains, though, of um, heaven and what it will be like. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. David writes, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In the presence of the Lord, your joy will be maximized. It will be full, is what this says. Right? Think of the happiest day you've ever had. Maybe it's your wedding day. Maybe your graduation day. Maybe some party you attended. Maybe some vacation. The happiest day you ever had. And fill it even more. Fill it to the top until it's overflowing. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's what heaven is like. It's a happier place than any place you've ever had here on earth. In fact, smiles will abound in heaven. Because our joy will be to the max. Think of your earthly pleasures that you most enjoy. Maybe just enjoy a cup of coffee out on the porch. Maybe you enjoy a thrill ride at the amusement park. Maybe you enjoy a night of romance with your spouse. Maybe you enjoy a high action thriller movie. But you know, with with all the earthly pleasures, they're all going to stop. Your coffee, your mug's going to be out. The ride will be over in a minute. Morning will come on your romantic night. We needed to come home from a pastoral retreat. And that was a bummer of a day. But you know what? In heaven, your pleasures will never cease to last forever. In your right hand, verse 11 says, there are pleasures forever. Not only will your joy be full, but it will be full forever. That's heaven. It's pleasure beyond measure. I want to to tell you a little bit about heaven right now. In heaven, there will be no more tears. In heaven, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The things in this life that cause great hurt and disappointment on the earth simply won't exist in heaven. There won't be any more funerals or funeral homes because nobody will die. There won't be any cemeteries or mausoleums. You won't have to deal with the loss of a loved one. There won't be any hospitals, no more cancer, no more tuberculosis, no more AIDS, no more leukemia. No more surgeries, no more x-rays, no more CTs, no more MRIs. The Robines are out of a job. Good thing my dad's retired. You don't need band-aids in heaven. 
crutches and wheelchair and prosthetic devices won't be needed in heaven. You won't sprain your ankle. You won't have a stomach ache. You won't have a headache. You don't need to go to the dentist because your tooth will never ache. You don't need to go to an ophthalmologist because your vision will be clear. No more cataracts. No more stigmatisms. LASIK surgery is a thing of the past. No more aches and pains of old age. That's heaven. Just a, a youthful body, right? The reason for that is pretty simple. There's no longer any curse in heaven. When our parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the garden, they brought the entire universe into slavery or corruption. And today the whole creation groans. It's not just your body. It's all of creation that groans. In heaven, such groaning won't take place. No more hurricanes in heaven. No more tornadoes in heaven. No more floods in heaven. There won't be any heat waves. There won't be any droughts. And everywhere you go, righteousness will reign. In heaven, there will be no more sin. All who practice abomination and lying are not permitted in the city. Revelation 21:27. Outside the city are the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and the liars. They can't come in. Their name's not written in the Lamb's book of life and they've never repented of their sins. But those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, who believe in Christ Jesus today, who are trusting in Him today, will be in. And upon entrance, they will be given a... A resurrection body, a new body, a spiritual body. It's no longer able to sin like the angels. Perfect in every way. No more arguments with your brothers or sisters. No more disagreements with your wife. No more marriage conflicts. No more relational difficulties. You won't be tired. You won't be lazy. You won't battle the lust of the flesh. Anger, malice, wrath, slander, and abusive speech will all be sins of the past. You will love completely. Kindness will be on your lips. Humility will govern your actions. You'll always place others more important than yourself. Heaven will be completely unified. There's one political party in heaven, and that's the political party serving the King of kings and Lord of lords. No need for elections. The King has been set for eternity. And the city in which we live will be beautiful. It shines like a precious stone. Its streets are of gold so pure that its streets look like transparent glass. Its gates are made of giant pearls, dazzling in their beauty. It's always clean. The garbage man is out of a job also. It says in Revelation 21:27 that nothing unclean enters into the city. The river that runs through the, the city is as clear as crystal. If you're thirsty, you can drink from it without cost. And the water is life-giving water. It's life-giving water. And right alongside this river is a tree called the tree of life. It bears 12 kinds of fruits, different kind each month. Probably stuff that we've never tasted before will taste in heaven. And those who taste of it will live forever. Speaking of food, there's going to be a day when we enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised the marriage supper of the Lamb continues on for a long time. That's speculation, but something like that. Some, just some great wedding feast. You know, recently our family went, <clears throat> had the opportunity to uh, attend a wedding. <clears throat> it's a wedding of a, a long-time friend of ours who loves Christ. His wife loves Christ. Beautiful wedding. Very God-honoring, Christ-centered. The testimonies of those at the wedding party were just speaking about how much the, the groom and bride love Jesus and want to serve Him. He's very honoring to the Lord. is great. At one point, I turned to my daughter, Krista, and I said, Krista, 
Maybe it was Hannah. I forget. Did I talk to you? I said, I really like weddings. Was it you? And I said, do you know why? And why did I say I like weddings? Do you remember? You don't. I said, because everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. The bride is happy. The groom is especially happy. And those who attend the wedding are happy. And the happiness of heaven, of weddings are just a foretaste of the happiness of heaven. I say foretaste because it's just the beginning of what heaven is like. The happiness of heaven is far greater than any happiness you have ever known upon the earth. You think about your happiest day ever here upon earth. That's like a downer day in heaven. Because your joy is filled in the presence of the Lord. And those of you who are married, can you remember the happiness of your wedding day? You know someday you'll be married again. This time you won't be married to a sinful spouse. You'll be married to Jesus Christ Himself. As we, the church, the collective bride of Christ, will be married to Jesus. <clears throat> and that wedding day will be a blessed day. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be a happy occasion. When the church is married to Jesus, those in the church will become partners with Jesus. And you know what? We will own the universe. Say, so what do you mean, own the universe, Steve? I mean that there, there won't be any private property anymore. We are our joint heirs with Christ. Doesn't Christ inherit the entire universe? And we as fellow heirs and joint heirs with Christ will inherit the entire universe as well. No private property. We all own everything. Certainly there were some things that I use, but the things that I use are actually yours. But you let me use them because it gives you so much joy and having me have joy in using them. And you're using stuff that's actually mine. But I want you to use it because if you get happiness in using that, I'm happy and that's what I want. It's no private property. We all have everything we need. Coveting is gone. No need for that anymore. Well, that's heaven. And I felt like... Um, I've just only scratched the surface of heaven. And my, my time, really, my message this morning is done to describe to you the pleasures of heaven. But tonight in flocks, we're going to dig more into heaven. Uh, it's kind of part two to my message, maybe. Really think, you know, we're going through Ezekiel chapter 1 speaks about heaven. Isaiah chapter 6 speaks about heaven. Revelation 4, Revelation 5 speak about heaven. And we're just going to open that up more. If you're going to come in here more, you can come. But I've told you this morning, just scratching the surface of what heaven will be like. I feel like Christian who said, I can better conceive of them with my mind than speak of them with my tongue. Spurgeon gave a per good perspective when describing heaven. He said this, We talk about pearly gates and golden streets and white robes and harps of gold and crowns of araminth and all that. But if an angel could speak to us of heaven, he would smile and say, All these fine things are but child's talk. And ye are little children and ye cannot understand the greatness of eternal bliss. And therefore, God has given you a child's horn book and an alphabet in which you may learn the first rough letters of what heaven is like. But what it is, you do not know. I've just scratched the surface to give you just a taste of what heaven will be like. Heaven's a place of grace. It is pleasure beyond measure. And so I ask you, kind of, we bring this message to a close. If heaven is our goal, why do the difficulties of life come so upon us so hard? Why do we sin so? John Newton had a great perspective. She said, 
Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the way, My carriage is broken! My carriage is broken! My carriage is broken! A large estate in New York worth millions. And he's, my carriage is broken. Oh, my carriage is broken. Complaining and bickering and arguing his turn of events all the way to heaven. But do we not do the same things? In light of the glories that await us, in, in light of the largest state in New York that we have before us, do we not grumble and complain too often? Do we not take the, the momentary light affliction and magnify it in our minds to make it bigger than it really ought to be? in light of where we're going? Are not the sufferings of this present age, are they not worthy to be compared with the glory that's been revealed to us? We can't compare what momentary light affliction, little sufferings we have compared with the glory that is to come. And I simply say, church family, you want to overcome sin in your life? Incline your gaze heavenward and incline your heart to the things above and set your minds on the things above, not on the earth. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So I just pray that God would give us grace to set our minds on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. Let's pray right now. Lord, I pray You convince our hearts and our minds that heaven is a place of grace and that heaven is pleasure beyond measure, a place to be sought after, a place to seek towards, a place where we need to mend our, mend our pace and walk towards it much more quickly than ever. I thank You for the, the glimpses of heaven that You give to us here upon earth. And I thank You for the, the trials that You bring. Even as Greg mentioned this morning, we, we began by thinking about heaven and then we thought about all the difficulties of all the people that we have at church. And we mentioned many things. God, even happening with our church family this week, we have uh, rebellious children. We have a, a man off serving in the military in Iraq and one on a, a weekend retreat. We have people with financial difficulties. We have people with fathers and grandfathers who are sick and in need of surgery. We have people with anxiety of what's going to take place this next year. We have marriages in great turmoil. We have physical bodies that are, are fleeting. We have children with leukemia. We have difficulties with waking early in the morning with that to take children to the hospital. We, we have sisters who are discouraged with their cancer. We have brothers who are dealing with Huntington's disease and dealing with the financial difficulties of another house that they own that's not being sold. We know of people in far distant lands, our friends in Nepal, who are being threatened even today with Maoists seeking to extort from them money. We heard today of uh, Taramara Indians in Mexico, the Taramara tribe in Mexico, where one of the elders had a, had a threat against him to burn his house down. He went to bed with the threat that perhaps his house would be burning, which would wake him up. God, these are troubles. They are real troubles. And they bring our mind and thoughts and attention to them. Lord, but I thank You that this is not the end. 
our life's not going to end in troubles. Our, our life will end in joy and righteousness and happiness and pleasure through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that You would allow us, the church, in incredible ways to set our minds in this place of grace and to set our minds these pleasures beyond measure that You would allow us to so walk as You would have us to walk. So, Lord, I pray that You would make these difficulties slim in the light of the glory of Your grace. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing the fiery furnace and they said they will yet praise You. And You can deliver them, but even if they don't, even if You don't, they will still trust You. And uh, Lord, so with all these circumstances of, of life, may the, the sufferings that we have even create in us a greater longing for heaven. We need Your grace in these things. But I, I would pray that in our hearts and our minds, heaven would be so glorious that earth would not be attractive and might th- seek the things above rather than things here upon earth. We pray in the wonderful name of our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.